is the Reformation needing to be over? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, and I sometimes it's sometimes people will say, well, you know, we we have a lot in common with Catholicism. We believe in the Trinity. Uh, we believe in uh, creation. We even believe in a gender identity, and we are also pro-life, and a lot of those folks uh, have the same viewpoints, and uh, can this division that has been around for 500 years simply just go away now? Uh, is there now more in common than, than we've had in history? And I would have to say that, uh, unfortunately, no, because there is a a formal principle that exists of a reason for a need for division. I want to use this picture as an illustration. Um, can, if you can see, I hope you can see that clearly. There's a left side and a right side. Uh, this is a carving. I don't know if you know Latin. Does anyone know Latin? You can read the Latin on the top left and the top right. Anyone know that? Karen, do you remember your catechism Latin? Oh, you didn't have catechism left. Dave did. Sorry. <laughs> That's too long ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so on the left side, what you have is, uh, this is the word of the Lord. And on the right side, you have, uh, thus says the Pope. And so you see on the right-hand side, you see the rosaries, right? And then you see the man in the monk's outfit, you see, you see the, the, the preacher on the left, he's more of an, a, a, not in a clerical robe. And uh, people have, the Bible is open, and people are looking at it. I felt like that was a pretty clever way to describe the formal principle of disagreement that we have with the Catholic Church. Uh, there are a lot of material differences that we also disagree with, material being interpretations of the Scriptures. But we have a more formal principle that we have disagreement over is what is the authority that we appeal to. Do we appeal to the words of one who interprets for us, or do we appeal to the words themselves as the source of our authority? Um, on your handout, you'll notice I, I, I took a quotation from our church statement of faith. Um, the very first article, the TBC Statement of Faith, uh, reads, We believe that the Bible is the verbally inspired Word of God. His revelation to man inerrant in the original writings, and it is therefore supreme and final authority in all matters of doctrine, faith, and life. And that last clause is uh, the formal principle. This is our area of disagreement that makes us distinct. From Catholicism. And uh, the problem at the time of the Reformation still continues to be a problem today, and the Bishop of Rome uh, wants to assert his authority over top of the Scriptures, and this itself has caused the division. It's not, the main problem is not divisions. It, it was collectively gathered to him over centuries of precedent, and Last Sunday we discussed that to a degree. But the main problem is not that we find divisions in the church. The problem is that the church often divides over the wrong issues. But this is the issue that is above every other issue. 
and is necessary for division. Um, I need to set a little bit of context. Um, we're going to look at uh, Martin Luther. We're also going to look at Zwingli, but I'm very briefly going to set a little bit of context um, as to what was going on um, leading up to the major break here with, with Luther. Um, a long-standing debate in the medieval church was over, truthfully, the authority of the Pope. You remember last time we were together, Innocent III took the claim of not being just merely the vicar of Peter, but the vicar of Christ. And he claimed authority that he did not truly deserve. That was in the early 1200s. Well, subsequently through that time period of leading up to the 1400s, that thesis was being tested by councils, being organized, and uh, a, a particular movement within Europe started to occur called conciliarism. And it was underlying, the underlying premise of this gathering movement was the question, what is the authority of the Pope in relationship to church councils? So you have groups of church leaders who meet together to discuss doctrine. What how is the Pope supposed to relate to this organized gathering of the collective church? And uh, finally, um, as, 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 as you saw the decay last Sunday we were together, the Babylonian period of the, Roman ch of the Roman church, you had a king in Avignon, France, who claimed to be a Pope. Then you had another Pope in Italy claiming to be Pope. And then you had political maneuvers between the two, and a lot of corruption. And finally, there was a, a, a council called the Council of Constance, in which that council of collected leaders throughout the, the European uh, church collectively decided, okay, we cannot keep going on with having a divided leadership. A two-headed monster is a monster. Two-headed organization is a monster, and this is a monster. And what they did was they excommunicated the two and established a singular pope again. But they did it, they did so with rules. And they said, um, councils have got to be held at a regular sequence of pattern, like every three or five years. We've got to have a, a, a council has to come in to check the authority of the pope. They also uh, dictated that there were, the Pope could not, they could not appoint indefinite cardinals. They could not, they had to have limits to the number of cardinals that they could appoint. And you can see, when you appoint a cardinal for a territory, that's a lot of power that you're putting, and everyone's going to start coming to you looking for favor. And a lot of, of, of problems developed that way. They also, uh, tried to put an end to um, nepotism, which is, um, nepotism is the uh, idea that uh, you can appoint your family uh, to positions. And uh, general councils were considered as being what was supreme, the supreme authority in the church. So the Council of Constance established these principles in 1414 through 1418. It was a long council, long meetings. 
you think being a deacon is having long meetings? Try being a part of a council for three and four years. That's a lot of meetings. Um, but it was during the Council of Constance that John Haas was put to death. We, we looked at him last Sunday. Um, and he was sentenced to death. But after the, after the establishment of these necessary councils, a lot of popes began to become very fearful of having them, and they, in the end, began to conveniently forget to schedule them, and gradually the power play tug-of-war increased. So this is all going on within the hundred years leading up to Martin Luther. Okay, so there's stress happening within the empire. Regional political kings are trying to gain more power. The church is trying to hold on to its power. And this is happening. In the midst of this also, there is the development of what's called humanism. Humanism is a movement that sought to resist the moral and cultural decay of the age by trying to retrieve wisdom from the original sources of ancient wisdom, uh, particularly Greek and Roman antiquity. Um, during this time period, the, the, a lot of people in the universities that were newly established began learning how to engage with Greek again. There had been a period of time where Greek knowledge had gone by the wayside. Everything was done in Latin formally. And so uh, an effort to go back to the sources uh, was established, and Desiderius um, Erasmus uh, was a leader in humanism, and um, he was a Catholic priest. He was also a scholar, and he lamented the abuses of the Catholic Church and the moral corruption that he saw, and he wrote a satirical piece called in praise of folly, and uh, it really targeted the establishment and their inappropriate use of power as leaders. Um, but his greatest contribution towards the Re Reformation was his translation and publication of a Greek New Testament. Um, before Erasmus established a Greek New Testament, Scripture was understood in the Latin. Um, it was a translation. It was not from the original. Um, perhaps you've heard the term, the Latin Vulgate. Do you know that term? Well, the word Vulgate simply means vulgar, or, or this is the language of the people. And it was the language of the clerics, but it wasn't entirely the language of like the French or the, the English. But it was, it was um, problematic. When it was translated in 382 by Jerome, um, he did it very quickly because in 381, the Roman Empire said, this is now the state religion, so we need to have a state translation. And Jerome was tasked with translating it. He did pretty well. However, he didn't, there were errors that kind of moved in with it. In particular... Mark 1.15 says um, that, that uh, to do penance rather than to repent and believe the gospel. And of course, a few weeks ago I talked about how 
Uh, the Greek word met, uh, metanoeo is, is a kind of a turn of one's heart orientation. And in the Latin, there's no word for that, so he was somewhat stuck with what words he had, and he, he used the word which means to do penance, which has works connotations in it completely. So I can't overstate the significance that, that his translation or his collection of Greek manuscripts and, and putting them into a single text that could be published, it, it was so significant because you had something that now was available to monks in the monasteries, 1,200 copies of this work produced and seeded throughout Europe. And with an interest in exploring the originals, people were taking a step away from the Vulgate and going to the original manuscripts as best they could. And two young priests who acquired early copies of Erasmus's work were, you know who they were? Martin Luther and also um, Zwingli. Yes, exactly. So I want to take some time now to kind of reflect on Martin Luther and the, his life. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, I think I did a monologue in a, a church service one time of uh, his testimony of coming to faith. Uh, so this is fairly uh, recent in our memory. But he was born in Asselben in ten, uh, in, in, on November 10th, 1483. He was married to a... Or he was not married. He was born into a mining family hard labor, blue collar, and his father really desired him to get something where he wouldn't get work that wouldn't get his fingers dirty. And so he sent him to university with the hope that he would then go into law. And while he was at Erfurt, Erfurt with, um, uh, with law, he became very sensitive to God's working on his conscience. And he knew within his heart that he was a a sinner, but he didn't find any sense of satisfaction to alleviate the sin that he knew he had. And one fateful evening, um, a lightning storm was occurring, and as he was uh, leaving campus, uh, he was on his way through the fields, and lightning hit, not him, nearby, and he cried out uh, to St. Anne to help him, and, uh, and he made this vow that he would become a monk. And uh, to his father's horror, he followed through with his oath and he went into the church. And he became an Augustinian monk. And while he was there, he applied himself as no other monk could have applied himself. And he tried to find peace with God. He said, um, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on it any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Um, he, he tortured himself, as you will, with prayer and fasting vigils. He even allowed himself to be expo- exposed to cold in order to try to atone for, to do penance for the sins that he knew he, he had within himself. Um, and... Uh, he says, it caused me pain such that I will never inflict that kind of pain on myself ever again if I could. Luther once said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, 
I would stand on my head for joy. He, he, had, he had such a way of words. And uh, he... And, I, and, and when, when, when we preach the Word of God and you're trying to do your best to communicate what it says, there is always within an audience some who will take it even more tightly than it was even intended, or take it more personally. Yes, the Word of God is intended to be personal, but some people can become feel entrapped, and they don't see a way out. Martin was one of these ways, was one of these people, and... Uh, as he was training in the monastery, he was also preparing himself to be a priest. And uh, if you recall, last Sunday we talked about the transubstantiation doctrine in which they believed that the actual bread and wine becomes the very body and blood. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why they came to that conclusion, but he saw that so vividly in his mind and imagination that as he was conducting his first mass, as he was lifting the goblet, he was terrified that he was holding the actual blood of Christ. He was terrified. And I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I dress such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Now, you commend his sensitivity on the one hand. It's important for us to be sensitive. But if we don't have a way out, that's problematic. Well, Luther had a mentor and a sponsor in the monastery. His name was jo Johann Stauffitz, and he was very keenly aware of the sensitivity of Martin, and he said, I don't think the priesthood is a great place for you. I'm going to have you go into uh, teaching in the university. And so after reluctantly and dutifully agreeing to do so, he, he began to teach at the University of Wittenberg. Uh, he received a doctorate, and that's where everything began to change. Um, as a professor, Luther only lectured, back in those days, lecturing was basically opening up the Bible in the Latin and reading it and offering commentary to your listeners. That was how it was structured, which meant he began to teach theology in university, and from 1513 to 14, his first lecture was from the book of Psalms. And when he came to Psalm 22... He read the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is a reference to Christ. And he started to realize, wow, Christ is experiencing what I experience. I feel completely forsaken by God. And it started to get him to think empathetically about the atoning work of Christ and what it might involve. And from April, 15, April 1515 to September 1516, God led Luther to teach the epistle of Romans. And it was at that time when Erasmus's Greek New Testament started to become available. Providentially, God allowed 
this to come at this time. And Luther finally began to understand the gospel. I'm going to let him explain what, what he was experiencing. He says, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit, that is through penance, would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. He was so sensitive to God's need to punish, but because he didn't see a way out, he felt like he was trapped, and that produced anger against God. He said, yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. So that exchange, Christ died as a punishment so that God's justice could be satisfied and the righteousness of Christ is then applied through faith. This is what he's saying. And when he grasped that, then therein I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas being before the justice of God had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love, and this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So after finishing Romans, he was a new person. And then he started to lecture through Galatians. And that, that epistle of Paul uh, cuts no corners with regard to uh, works. And he started to realize that the church, through the doctrine of indulgence, was preaching an anti-truth, an anti-gospel, and that they should be accursed, if you will. Uh, if you remember Galatians 1, Paul says, if I or any other man preach another gospel, let him be accursed. And he started to become very sensitive that the church in Rome was teaching something completely foreign to the true gospel. And so he, he took to task issue of indulgences, and perhaps we become a little more familiar with that part of the story in which um, in the need to gather funds for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome to have a strong presence against Muslim advances in the East, the church was doing some pretty strange things with indulgences, and uh, Pope Leo X uh, stated that uh, if you take, if you spend money for the construction of the basilica, the indulgence would be an offer of plenary and perfect remission of all sins, and that they would restore sinners to the state of innocence which they enjoyed in their baptism as an infant. And so, to Luther, this was like this was like. Unbelievable. Uh, and so, on October 31st, 
Halloween Day. <laughs> we can often call it Reformation Day now. October 31st, 1517, Luther posted his 95 Theses, written in Latin, uh, for debate. That was a standard practice. You'd post, you know, you want to have a disputation, like a debate, that's what it was called. And these are my theses, and if you want to debate me, you can come and we'll, we'll debate these things before an audience. And that's how, how it went. And um, someone took it down and translated it into German, and without Luther's new, uh, knowledge, a printer nearby printed mass quantities and got them out throughout the whole <laughs> German state. Um, and he suddenly found himself as uh, persona non grata with the Church of Rome um, as, as a... As a what Pope, the Pope actually called him the wild boar in God's vineyard as causing disaster uh, in, in the vineyard. Um, but Luther was uh, given opportunities to defend his positions. Um, these disputations took place. He, took, he, he, took, he debated in Heidelberg and then at Leipzig. And then finally in 1521, he was summoned to appear before the imperial court in Worms, I think that's how you say it. I want to say Worms, but it's Worms. Uh, and um, when he arrived there, he was promised safety. Do you remember John Huss was promised safety? Uh, so what Luther did, I'm not going unless the Prince of Saxony, my home, guarantees my safety, which is smart. He didn't want to be taken into custody as soon as he arrived. And so, when he got there, Johann Eck was the accusing Catholic cleric, and before princes, before the emperor, before clerics, he stood and was asked two questions, just two questions, it sounds almost like standing before Congress, two questions, yes or no, only answer yes or no. Do you, Martin Luther, recognize the books published under your own name as your own? And two... Are you prepared to recant what you have written in these books? Now, Luther was smart. He, he, he replied, I can't possibly reject everything in them because there's some things in there that agree with, agree with Scripture. I mean, like, I, I need time. Give me a day to think and pray. And, and, and so he was given that time. And as he prayed through the evening, um, he came back with a speech to deliver as he wanted to break down his works into three different groups and explain each one of them and why he couldn't recant them. Smart, very wise. Um, it was a skillful move, but the council was not going to have any, uh, anything of it. They broke him down, they stopped him and said, we only want a yes or a no. And they said, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without resistance, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And of course, he couldn't give a no, yes or a no, so he said, Since then, your majesty and your lordship's desire a simple reply, I will answer without resistance and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, and my conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Did you notice that he appealed to the conflict between popes and councils? Very smart. He knew what was going on in local politics, and he said, look, you guys can't even agree with Scripture. 
you're calling me to agree with you. And so he says, and that, 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 uh, that really put him into a place of excommunication with, with the church. Thankfully, he was guaranteed a safe passage back to Germany. He was hidden for three years by the prince of Saxony, uh, uh, Frederick the Great, and he was um, cared for. He translated uh, the Bible into German for the German-speaking people, and uh, he engaged in scriptural debates as well. Uh, one, of the, one of the other works that he's well-known for besides the German Bible is his work called The Bondage of the Will. Um, Erasmus um, wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and uh, Erasmus argued that conversion and salvation were a shared work of human free will and divine grace. Now, I'm not debating any issues here necessarily, but what I'm just saying is that in his work, he was very optimistic in ways that we would not be optimistic about human nature. Um, and, and as he from a humanist point of view, thinking that mankind had capacity to, to find his way to God, he was arguing from a very optimistic point of view man's ability to reform himself by his own decisions. This provoked Luther to write his most forceful treatise, which was called The Bondage of the Will, which it is a pessimistic title, I know, but it's actually a little bit more realistic about the nature of fallen humanity in which we have within ourselves a recursive tendency away from God. We have a recursive tendency towards a self-love and we do not naturally love God. There has to be some work of the Holy Spirit there to, that we respond to, to respond to the gospel. And so he's well known for that work as well. I'm going to move uh, hopefully quickly here to Ulrich. Zwingli, but before I do, does anyone have any questions? I notice I'm talking very fast. Any questions that come up? Yes, Barb. Mm-hmm. It, I think, did you send me an email on this? Okay. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit. I couldn't recall that term, but I do believe that uh, it has, the, the original sin is the concept that, that we all inherit a disposition towards ourselves and sin. And that natural disposition is a recursive. It's like a recursive tendency. I do know that uh, Luther uses that, and I don't know what the Latin term for that is, and I could look that up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I will try my best to, to do a little bit more research this week on that question. <laughs> um, Ulrich uh, Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther and reformer in the city of Zurich, Switzerland. I would say that if uh, Martin Luther is the spiritual father of Protestantism, Zwingli is the father of the reformed movement within Protestantism. Protestantism is a pretty 
wide, uh, a, a big tent, if you will. So there's a, a, a variety of theological commitments that exist within our Protestant disagreement with Rome on that formal principle. Zwingli was born New Year's Day, 1484, in Switzerland. And at that time, Switzerland was divided into smaller sub-provinces called cantons. And he was raised underneath, I can imagine, uh, you know, the sound of music in the Alps and just the beauty uh, that he would have been immersed in. Um, I think that's one place in Europe that I would like to see and travel and go, go see. Um, but uh, he was educated in the humanist tradition at the University of Vienna and then at Basel, and he had acquaintance. He, became, he was basically a mentor of um, Erasmus. And at, in 1506, at the age of 22, he became ordained to ministry, and because of that association, he had access to the Greek New Testament as well. And he wrote later in 1515 or 1516, just about the time Luther was teaching the Psalms and Romans, he said, I undertook to devote myself entirely to the Scriptures. Led by the Word and the Spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside philosophy and theology and learn the doctrine of God directly from his own Word. Um, he later wrote that before anyone had heard the name of Luther, he had begun to preach the gospel and to displace the mass in Zurich. Um, when I entered the pulpit, I did not preach the words of the gospel lesson appointed me for the mass that morning, but rather from the biblical text alone. Um, this is something maybe I glossed over fairly quickly, but as the church began to formalize its worship, they established liturgy for the church and prescribed readings for each Sunday of the year. It was on a rotation, three- and four-year rotation. And so the topic that would be preached that Sunday would be predetermined, kind of like, um, almost, I hate to say it, almost like a subscription to sermons. There's some churches where they distribute the sermons to the, the pastors. This is what he's saying. I stopped taking my download, basically, and I started to go to the Word of God myself and to teach that to the people. And uh, that made a significant difference. And in less than 12 years, he saw the Swiss city of Zurich transformed from a Catholic entity into a more formal Protestant community. Um, but he was patient in the process. Um, and so I want to highlight some of his significant contributions, and that is the emphasis on expository preaching. Uh, that may go, uh, based on my description, that kind of is, makes sense. That's what he did. In fact, he started consecutively preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And when he came and started preaching, he would preach to an end of a paragraph. <laughs> he would stop, and the very next week, you'd hear the next paragraph. Kind of like what we do. Uh, faithful expository preaching, and when he completed the New Testament, he went back and started the Old Testament and picked up the very next passage in a row. Um, he, he defended his position by calling it the Lectio Continua. In other words, this is the continuing lectionary. The scriptures have a prescribed pattern. We're just going to preach right through them. And he said this was practiced by John Chrysostom uh, back in the ancient 
past. It's good for him. It's good for us today. Um, in contrast to the other churches, um, uh, Swingley arrived in the pulpit carrying his Bible. And uh, a lot of the priests didn't know basically what they were saying. They knew how to pronounce the Latin, but they didn't actually even know what it meant. Really sad. Um, but Swingley explained, he said, um, all of our work, those who preach the gospel, contains only in preaching how we find the assurance of our salvation in the deaf and living Son of God. He was very conscious how necessary it was to give people the word. Um, in, a, in a system that had been for hundreds of years stoked in guilt, there was a need for a heavy emphasis upon assurance in the completed work of Christ. And so that was his emphasis. Um, I would also like to mention his patient reforming work. Um, there were others within Europe during this time period that wanted very radical, immediate uh, reformation to occur to the point that it was going to break down society. Um, some changes need pastoral wisdom in, in making them. And there are times when there is change that needs to occur, but it needs to be done patiently, carefully, sensitively. And Zwingli was one of those who had a real skill. He, um, he, he explained from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, he said, Behold the grandeur of the Christian shepherd. He feeds the flock with the painstaking watchfulness and does not constrain except as far as the word itself constrains. And so allowing the word of God to lead people to final conclusions. And so two of the main areas of controversy in Zwingli's early years were the abolition of the mass and then also the removal of images and icons from sanctuaries. Zwingli opposed the mass and preached accordingly, but he, he believed that it could only be abolished gradually as there was collective agreement to do so. And uh, he was very sensitive, um, and he believed, and he had told the city council that the mass should be abolished and replaced with an evangelical service, but out of respect for weaker brothers, this change should be made slowly. And uh, in other words, Zwingli was a realist, and I think that's important to, to recognize um, uh, an insistence on patience earned Zwingli some enemies in unexpected places. In particular, there were pacifists and there were also revolutionaries that wanted to use the Reformation, the revolutionaries wanted to use the Reformation to upset all of the continent. Um, have, has anyone ever heard of the Peasants' Revolt? Peasants' Revolt uh, was an uprising based upon people thought that people could put two and two together. They recognized that all of this is garbage. Why are we still doing it? And so 100,000 peasants began to try to seize control of the seat of power in Europe, and people suddenly said, okay, we've got we to do this more orderly and gradually. And the powers that were crushed the peasant revolt, and 100,000 people were killed. So Zur and, and so Zwingli recognized, okay, the implications of these truths are so significant, but we have to be careful that we don't destroy our society in the process of change. And I think that that was a, 
that's a commendable uh, uh, desire, and to move move the congregation and people gradually. Um, the, um, so he had many partnerships uh, with friends. He did not isolate himself uh, as well. Um, I'm not going to go into all of their his associations, but only to say he was a very gregarious man. But there was one relationship that he had very dif- had a lot of difficulty with, and that was with Martin Luther. They were all on the same team, so to speak, but they couldn't agree over how the communion was supposed to be understood. Uh, Luther, um, they both disagreed with transubstantiation, but Luther believed in the omnipresence of, the, of Christ's body. He believed that there was a sense in which, mysteriously so, the body was present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. That's his words. It was after the resurrection, Christ's material body can be in multiple places at once. And he was simply saying, look, this, I see when we do this, there is a sense in which, yeah, it's not the actual, it's the real, you could, if that was all you ate, you would die, because it's not sufficient, it's just a little bit of bread and wine. But there is a sense in which God's physical presence is here. Zwingli, on the other hand, said, look, and this is what we typically call the memorial view, um, and he maintained that the word is in this is my body means represents. And I would say that a large part of our evangelical heritage follows this view. Um, this is my body um, is not the objective representation. We believe it's, it's a representation of the spiritual truth of his body being taken in our hearts. And so um, that did cause some significant conflict between the two, and they were never ever formally able to resolve that issue. And so the Lutheran church and the Reformed churches have had a distinguishing difference on the basis of how to, how to think about communion. Um, he did not live many years, but as an older man, tragically on October 11th, 1531, he participated in a, the Battle of Capel, uh, in which he led his city-state out uh, in defense uh, from attack from another Swiss state nearby. And uh, he was only 47 years old. He died, and like a light, it just went out like that. Um, what I want to kind of come away from, what I want you to come away from this, this lesson, sorry, I didn't keep up with this. There you go, there's the Zwingli. What I, want to, what I want to kind of come away with is thinking about the formal principle of the scriptures. And I want to use this woodcut drawing as an example And I think, does this give me a pointer? Come on. All right. Does this give me a pointer? Okay. In this woodcut, this comes from a German Bible in 1531. Sometimes they put very ornate pictures in their Bibles. But this was representing the early stages of the Reformation. You have, um, see the the mill with the triangle shape there? Um, what you see there is a, a representation of Christ above pouring out the disciples into the mill. 
And it's a figurative way of saying that Christ's word is being poured out and is being ground and made available for others. You have Erasmus there with a sack, taking, taking the flour and putting it in sacks. So it's, Erasmus had a role in getting the word out to the people. And then you have um, Luther is baking bread on the other side. <laughs> and they have a picture of Luther doing that right, yeah, right there. And then turning towards the people, you have Zwingli proclaiming the word out to the people. And uh, it's a great way to kind of summarize the, the necessity of the Word of God and getting the Word of God to the people because that's what reforms people ultimately. It's what, where doctrine is. And we have to do the hard work of trying to understand what the Scriptures are saying. There's no, you can't get away from that. But we always have to go back and test what we have concluded with the Word of God to see whether or not it's so. And each generation has a responsibility to pick that up and to think about those things again and go back to the Word of God. And so, very thankful for um, the heritage that we've received. Obviously, we don't, we don't draw everything that that first generation uh, was doing, but we're very thankful for their, their effort towards us. Well, thank you for sticking around today and uh, hearing this presentation. God bless you and have a good week.